Hello and welcome to WRI's Big Ideas Into Action podcast. I'm Nicholas Walton, and in this episode, we're looking at something that's an issue for all of us, air quality. Sulfur dioxide, nitrogen oxide were really high. And that's how Mexico City was known to be the worst polluted city in the world. Air quality is linked to more than 6 million deaths a year and affects everything from the health of our lungs to the health of our planet. But what can be done about it? With technology now, you can put up fairly small, simple monitors and stream the data to see what the air quality is in that location. Later on, perspectives on air quality from everywhere from Nairobi to Indonesia and India. But first, to the capital of Mexico. Mexico City, one of the largest, busiest, most exciting cities on the planet, but also for many years, one of the most polluted. When I visited the city back in the mid-1990s, you could smell the pollution hanging in the air. But now something has changed, and much of that is down to the work of Beatriz Cardenas. She's now Air Quality Director at WRI Mexico. But before that, she filled several roles all dedicated to tackling the city's air pollution problem. Back in the late 80s, it was clear that Mexico City was facing a very, very bad problem in terms of air pollution. First, there was a lot of uh, reports from the scientific community that something uh, in the air, I mean, based on the measurements, indicated the levels were so high. Sulfur dioxide, uh, nitrogen oxide, as well as particulate matter and ozone were really high. And that's how Mexico City was known to be the worst polluted uh, city in the world. It was clear that many people were suffering some health impacts. Not so clear that was related to air quality until it was clear that the air quality was really bad. There was enough uh, scientific information by that time that air quality was actually having a lot of impacts on health, mainly from Europe and the U.S., And you've been heavily involved yourself in changing what's happening in in Mexico City with its air quality. Yeah, I I started working in atmospheric science, air quality since 1988. And I was originally working at the research institution of the federal government. We were doing a lot of analysis of air quality and um, samplings and other pollutants. I was actually the general director of Mexico City Air Quality in uh, 2017 and 2018. And it was clear that there was a problem. That was actually the very clear example of how scientific work and a lot of knowledge generated by the scientific community can be used by local authorities to design policies, to implement them, and more importantly, evaluate if they are working. So that's that's a nice story because in 2003 and 2006, there were two major field campaigns, scientific field campaigns, that actually produce a lot of research that help to identify the sources, the main sources, and understanding what was the chemical reactions that were happening in the atmosphere that was very particular to Mexico City. And then based on that, identifying what actions could be the most effective. So first of all, you recognize the problem, then it was measured, and then science could come in and start to work out what worked the best. What was it that actually did make an effect? Well, designing policies based on this identification of the sources, for instance, uh, it was identified that early in the 90s, it was clear that there was a refinery inside Mexico City 
that was generating a lot of emissions. So that was actually one of the main important things that the federal government did. They actually closed the refinery. Then another sources were actually popping up, like vehicular emissions. We didn't have catalytic converters in the 80s. So that was a, a big issue to push the automotive industry to bring catalytic converters. How many other low and middle income cities have, have actually got the capability to do this amount of measuring and research before they even make the policies? Unfortunately, very, very few. Many cities in the global south, I would say Latin America, start to build some monitoring infrastructures in the late 80s. But unfortunately, that's a work that has to continue every day. So these equipments are operating every minute. They take a sample, they analyze, and they generate the data. So if you have this equipment running every hour, every day of the year, if you don't have the resources, both budget to buy the equipment, to buy the cylinders of calibration, or the people who actually operate and do the analysis, you can lose that. So that's something that many cities have actually do in measuring, but very few have actually the capacity of doing some scientific work outside, partner with scientific community, both local and outside. So in in terms of Mexico, only a couple of uh, metropolitan areas, very few studies in Monterrey, for instance, uh, very few studies in Guadalajara. So how does the Clean Air Catalyst propose to move from being able to gather data and science and so on to making an impact? Well, first, what we are uh, bringing is a, it's a consortium of different institutions, different groups who have been working in air quality issues, trying to answer that question. So how our scientific work could help, in this case, a city to answer many questions. One of them is what sources of air pollution are in the city? What type of pollutants, what type of monitoring, basic monitoring we can bring into the city, but also what experiences or what knowledge can we use from other cities, maybe from Mexico City, maybe from Detroit, maybe from Delhi. So that's something new in the, in the clean air catalyst because we are bringing scientific partners and really making an effort of asking the more important questions and then trying to define and design some fieldwork that could help us to generate complementary data to identify what sources are the important in that city. What is the air quality in that city? What are the sources, the main sources, both local and outside sources? Uh, Sitting where you are in Mexico City, what difference has it made to people's lives that the air is a lot better than it was in the 80s? I mean, you can see it. I mean, we have more clear days that uh, we had before. I definitely remember my childhood my, my when I was young. We used to have very bad days the whole year. You don't smell the, the smoke behind a car as, as we used to do. And, you know, there are some studies that have shown that because of the improvement of air quality, citizens have actually expanded the lifetime to almost three years. There are also some estimations of how many premature deaths have been actually saved. So it, it's definitely changed a lot. If a big city, complex city as Mexico City, has been able to improve the air quality, many, many other cities, and especially after 
the lessons learned, we can do actually a leapfrog and improve their quality even faster. Beatriz Cardenas. So if Mexico City has shown the way, what can other cities do to clean up their air? A new initiative from the World Resources Institute, along with the US Agency for International Development, the Environmental Defence Fund and others, is aimed at unpicking and resolving air pollution problems. One key issue is understanding local pollution sources, which vary city by city, neighbourhood by neighbourhood, and can change depending on the weather or season. That's where specialised monitoring and analysis is needed. Jackie Klopp works on Columbia University's Clean Air Toolbox for Cities project. I was working in Nairobi and it was very frustrating to see that a lot of investments were going into car-oriented development, which is also emissions-heavy development, and yet the majority of people walk and take public transit. And that really bothered me. I really wanted to be able to also look at the health impacts of this skewed investment. So I got more and more interested in looking at at the air pollution aspect. And air pollution, of course, impacts everybody in a city. And while having said that, often the poorest folks are subjected to the worst air pollution because of where they live, where they work. In Nairobi, for example, the poorest walk, and they walk along highways, and they breathe in emissions. They may not have access to electricity, so they're burning biomass as they cook in the evenings. They might work in an industrial zone with factories that are poorly regulated. And so they have these very, very high burdens of air pollution relative to the wealthy. But I was and am very intrigued about how we can build coalitions across class to address air pollution as a public health issue that affects everybody and address the environmental justice issues that are tied in with air pollution. Well, well, to start off with, we can talk about when people started to notice that it was such an important issue, not just for you know, having a cough at the back of your throat, but real serious health implications and, as you say, climatic implications, all sorts of uh, implications like that. When, when did people really start to wake up to that? I think in Europe, it was in the 1950s, there was the terrible London smog where a number of people died from the smog. So it was very, very direct. And that smog was linked to burning of coal. And I think that was, at least for the UK, a really big wake-up moment. Different places have different wake-up moments around these issues you know, for the Swiss, it was not being able to see their beautiful mountains and realizing, you know, they needed to reorient their cities to low emissions. You know, we have Beijing, which has extremely severe air pollution events, right, where people have to stay inside, wear masks. Same with Delhi. And these issues are growing as we continue to burn fossil fuels, for example. But I think now we have a global consciousness that this is a very serious problem that results in over 8 million deaths annually. And, and you think that something called participatory science is part of the solution. Can you explain that, please? Yeah. So one of the big problems with air pollution is that it is usually not visible. Now, we have the extreme events like the smog in London in the 1950s and the bad air days in Beijing and Delhi or, or Los Angeles 
but usually it's invisible. And that makes it very hard for people to engage in the problem. And we need the science in a way to make it visible. Air pollution really requires measurement, measurement that's linked to action so that if citizens are more involved in actually measuring the air pollution and engaging with science, then they have more of the ammunition they need to protect themselves and to advocate for addressing that air pollution. What actually happens? Uh, Who do you bring in and what do they do? Often it can be motivated by a particular problem. So, for example, work I've been involved in in Nairobi involved being concerned about air pollution around schools and then thinking about how we can use schools as places that can be educational centers for learning about air pollution. So the United Nations Environmental Program, with a colleague of mine who is there, basically put these monitors in schools in Nairobi. With technology now, you can put up you know, fairly small, simple monitors and stream the data to see what the air quality is in that location. And so you can get the schools to actually be involved in looking at the data. And then you can start to analyze the data and say, well, maybe, you know, there are some problems of sources in your neighborhood that are that are causing these things and have discussions. Also, you know, sometimes the scientists may not know those communities so well to understand what some of the local sources might be. And so uh, citizens can also say, look, I, you know, we really see burning that's happening a lot in this landfill. We see we have a highway that's not so far from us. They can they can talk about some of the sources they're concerned about. And then you can match that to the data. So, so in effect, you're getting better data, and that means better science and better understanding of the sources of pollution and therefore a way to combat it. But at the same time, you're also getting greater com- community involvement in, in understanding and, and fixing their own problems. Exactly. Fighting air pollution can be difficult. It's often somewhat invisible to the public, and often the sources are not totally understood. For example, there was a recent study in the UK that showed a lot of people see transportation as a really big source of pollution, which it is, but they don't see agriculture with the fertilizers and and pesticides as a big of a problem, but it is a very big source of pollution in the UK. So there has to be a lot of science communication to bring to life what some of the problems are. And then often the polluters are quite powerful. So creating coalitions of people who are affected to fight against (laughs) certain sources where you might have concentrated power can be a difficult political problem, especially when the consequences of that pollution are more incremental on your health, right? This is part of the real difficulty of doing advocacy in this area. Jackie Klopp of Columbia University. You're listening to WRI's Big Ideas Into Action podcast. And as you heard from Jackie, once there is a clear and shared understanding of the sources of pollution in a city, it becomes easier to trace and tackle the root causes. That's where something called the Clean Air Catalyst comes in. Cities in the developing world are at the front lines of a growing air pollution crisis. 
The idea is to move quickly from gathering data to making an impact. It needs to go beyond regulating exhaust fumes or factory emissions, towards generating transformative change that makes the air that we breathe cleaner and healthier. So, is helping citizens to become more aware of what is causing the pollution. The catalyst is being piloted in two cities, Jakarta in Indonesia and the Indian city of Indore. This is Shika Joshi of the Self-Employed Women's Association in Indore. She said air pollution is causing problems for people's lungs and eyes. Shika says that many of the women she works with, who earn a living as street vendors or carrying loads, don't fully understand this connection between pollution and poor health. Aditi Garg is the former CEO of Indore Smart City. We have installed multiple air pollution meters at various locations that give real-time input to the citizens. She and says that this network of air pollution meters gives real-time data about the location and level of air pollution, and that the city's citizens have welcomed this, seeing it as a key step to solving the pollution problem. Ramon Alvarez is the Associate Chief Scientist of the Environmental Defence Fund, one of WRI's partners in setting up the Clean Air Catalyst. The Cleaner Catalyst is a new project that's being led by World Resources Institute with the Environmental Defense Fund. It's funded by the U.S. Agency for International Development, and it seeks to try a new way of tackling an old and thorny problem of air pollution in cities around the world, in particular focusing on low and middle income countries. And so the idea here is to try to match the problem with solutions, better understanding air pollution, the sources that are affecting air pollution in a particular city and even within a city, more in specific neighborhoods, so that people can make the connection about the sources that are causing air pollution to be elevated in that part of a city, that part of the world, and then to develop solutions around those by trying to understand the root causes that are leading to those emissions and bringing together a coalition of parties to implement a solution. Air quality does seem to be quite a, almost a hyper-local thing. You were talking then about neighborhoods. How many of the factors that cause air pollution and, and the ways that you can deal with the challenges of air pollution, how, ma how many of them are common to different locations around the world? Or are the, the kind of drivers and the solutions, are they just as hyper-local as the, as the impact itself? Um, I, you know, there's going to be a variety. Uh, I think that there, the whole spectrum, there's some, some sources that are kind of common everywhere if you think about transportation right everybody in cities around the world needs to get get around the city for work or play we're always going to be facing transportation emissions uh, also the transport of goods around cities and between cities the question is how do those emissions from these activities that we all partake in how do they get distributed obviously the closer you are to a source the more likely it is to be having an impact on the pollution that you're breathing. And so, so that's where the hyperlocal angle comes in. It's your proximity to the source of the pollution and how much of the benefit you can get because the atmosphere is diluting those emissions. It is also reacting some of them away, but your proximity will affect how much of the dose you get from that pollutant, that pollution source. And so hyperlocal is definitely proving to be a promising way to look at the problem and people can kind of make a connection to the problem. There's a salience 
it makes the problem more tractable because now you know, oh, in my neighborhood, the biggest source of emissions is this particular roadway or this particular activity, and we can do something about it. How, how difficult is it to move from getting the data and then understanding what's actually causing the pollution and getting its impacts, right? Moving from that to actually getting the action done that's going to be able to reduce the pollution and get the air quality up. That step is, is the critical one, right? It's, we call it data to action, right? So we're getting additional data about the pollution at a particular location and the, the likely sources that are causing that pollution. How do we take that data and translate it to action to reduce that pollution coming from that source? So this is where uh, our project is trying to really understand the driving forces. What, what is it that is causing that source to be polluting? Is it a lack of regulations? Is it a lack of transportation management? Is it simply a lack of enforcement of existing regulations? You know, these are all different examples. And so we will undertake a root cause analysis to try to sort of ask, why is that happening? And then once you find out why it's happening, what can you do to disrupt that activity? Is it simply turning over a fleet of vehicles? Is it better enforcement? Is it new technology? It's going to vary by, by location. It's going to vary by source. What we're trying to create is very kind of micro level focus on sources, their emissions, and create a process that is replicable. You'll have to do this for the variety of sources that are affecting a neighborhood or affecting a city. But by chunking up the problem into the specific sources and solutions, we think that you can get action, but it's, it's always gonna take somebody to drive through that process, hopefully by engaging more citizens, by engaging civic leaders who all want to take action to reduce pollution because it is affecting people's health. It is affecting the, the economy as a result of sort of these health costs. So there's, a, there's an inherent motivation to take action, but, but what's missing is the mechanism to do so in a kind of replicable and effective way. And so that's what we hope to bring to the table with this project. Picking up on what you've just said about the impact of air pollution on people's lives, on their health, in your own experience, having worked on these issues for so long, what kind of difference does it make when you get it sorted out, when, when you actually are able to improve the air quality in a particular neighborhood or, or city? Well, the, the, the impacts are, are, are very personal in a way, right? It's, it's uh, what we're talking about is reducing the burden of disease in populations. And that can extend from, you know, the very severe impacts of premature mortality. You know, there's eight or nine million people a year that are dying from air pollution alone, more than die from a variety of illnesses like tuberculosis or malaria. But there's also uh, other sorts of diseases like asthma, the exacerbation of asthma. People develop asthma in more polluted neighborhoods and less polluted neighborhoods. So avoiding those asthma cases, avoiding the hospitalizations of children that uh, have an asthma attack and need rescue medicine. You know, these are all the tangible benefits that accrue by, by reducing the pollution that people are breathing every day. Ramon Alvarez, ending this edition of WRI's Big Ideas Into Action podcast. This time looking at the enduring problem of local pollution and the potential of the clean air catalyst for finding solutions. You can find more on the city's page at wri.org where you can also dig out more of our podcasts on everything from food waste to restoration in Brazil. You can also subscribe via SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify or any other podcast app. I'm Nicholas Walton. Thanks for listening.